0: And you can uh, take your Bibles, turn them with me to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis 13. So, a couple of weeks ago, we enrolled in the school of faith uh, with Abram, uh, our father in the faith. And through God's dealings with him, we are learning about living by faith. In the first half of Genesis 12, Abram scored an A on his first exam in the school of faith. Uh, God told Abram, leave your home, your family, your gods, leave everything that you've known behind, make me your God, go to another land that I'll show you, even though you don't know where it is. Uh, I'm going to give you offspring, even though your wife is infertile, and I'm going to bless the whole world through you, uh, even though you have no idea how that's going to happen. And Abram responds, by leaving everything behind. Uh, That's bold obedience. Some might even say that's crazy obedience. But Abram, with the eyes of faith, recognizes that God and His promises are way better than anything that his old life had to offer. But Abram is not perfect. In fact, Abram is just like you. And so last week, in the second half of chapter 12, Abram takes his second exam in the school of faith. And what's his grade? big fat F on the exam. He failed. A famine strikes Canaan, and out of fear, he takes matters into his own hands and leaves the land that God called him to. He takes refuge in Egypt, and then he becomes afraid that once people there get a look at his beautiful wife, Sarai, uh, they're going to kill him so they can have her. Now, if he would have operated out of faith in the promises of God, he would not have worried about being murdered, because part of God's promise involves divine protection. God said, whoever dishonors you, I will curse. No one can mess with Abram without messing with God himself. But Abram doesn't rest in that promise. He instead tries to preserve his life through his own clever scheming and and, and manipulation, and he has Sarai lie and tell everyone that they're not married and uh, that they're just brother and sister, and and so Abram's life is spared. However, the plan works too well, and Pharaoh, the king, takes notice of Sarai and says, oh, great, you guys are just brother and sister? (laughs) You're not married? Great! And he takes Sarai and puts her in his harem, Eventually, God steps in and intervenes. He strikes the household of Pharaoh with plagues. Pharaoh discovers the truth about Sarai. He's naturally pretty upset with being hoodwinked, and he consequently kicks Abram and Sarai out of the country. And so, we left Abram and Sarai last week leaving Egypt, heads hung low in shame, I'm sure, going northward back to Canaan. But the good news is is that despite Abram's foolishness in Egypt, God nevertheless protected and preserved him, uh, thus protecting and preserving God's promise to bless the whole world. God is faithful to keep all of His promises, His, His big global promises, and He's also faithful to His individual people. He's faithful to complete the good work that He's begun in Abram. And this week, we're going to see Abram now advancing in the school of faith, and my prayer is that we will grow with him. So let's roll up our sleeves, and let's get started. Let's get to work. Please stand with me now as we read the sermon text together, and we stand at Harbin's Church as a way of recognizing that this Word is the Word of the Lord, and we should listen to it with care and with eager attention, fully expecting that God is going to bless us as we listen. Genesis chapter 13, Word of God says, "'So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the Negev. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord.' And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, "'Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen.'" Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, thus they were separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, "Lift "'Lift up your eyes.' And look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us now to, to hear and understand your holy and inspired word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so there are two ways to live. You can walk by faith, or you can walk by sight, You can let your life be shaped by faith in God's perfect and reliable promises, or you can disbelieve what God says and instead base everything on your own flawed, sinful, unreliable wisdom and perception of reality. Those are the two ways that you can go. And in our text today, we're going to see a stark contrast between these two men, Abram and Lot. One walks by faith, the other walks by sight, and the direction they go uh, where they end up will, in the end, be in two totally different places. Now, the first thing I want us to observe in our text is an example of faith, where we see a saint's repentance, a, a saint's repentance. Now, the simplest way that I could illustrate repentance is, is just by walking. So, so, what repentance is, is that I'm going this way, I'm moving in this direction, I'm, I'm, this is my way of life, my choices, uh, what I want to do, and then repentance simply is what? Turning around, doing an about-face, and, and going in this direction. I was going my way. Now I'm walking in the way of the Lord because I trust Him. So it's, it's… your life now is going in a different direction. Last week, we saw Abram moving in the direction of unbelief, and it resulted in absolute disaster. Uh, he, he nearly lost his wife, his life, everything. It was catastrophic, epic fail. So what do you do in those moments? Uh, What do you do when you've had a major spiritual meltdown where you have completely blown it and you feel so ashamed and so low? Uh, What do you tend to do in those times? Well, let's see what Abram did. I want you to notice something interesting. Uh, Turn back to chapter 12, verse 8, and, and you'll see that his starting place was in the area of Bethel with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. But then in verse 9, we see him going south into the Negev, and in verse 10, he goes further south into Egypt. Geographically, that actually describes his journey into sin. But now, what do we see in chapter 13? Pay close attention to the geographic markers. I think this is very deliberate. Verse 1, so Abram went up from Egypt into the Negeb. Verse 3, and he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai. Now, Moses could have easily dispensed with all of that and just kept it real simple and said, then Abram returned to Canaan. But instead, he deliberately and painstakingly is is showing Abram retracing his steps. Abram's repentance is reflected literally in the direction that he's walking in. He has turned around. He is going the opposite way, away from Egypt and back into the land of promise where he should have been in the first place. That's an act of faith. But more than that, in verse 4, it says that Abram went to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Abram's going back to the place where his pilgrimage of faith first led him, uh, where he first built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. Twice the wording of the text suggests a restart. Uh, Verse 3 says, at the beginning. Verse 4 says he's back to where he was at the first. His return to the Lord is reflected in his going back to where he began with God. So, brothers and sisters, I, I ask you again, where do you go when you fall, when you totally mess up, when, when you're completely shaken and devastated in the wake of your own catastrophic spiritual failure? I know what some of you do. Some of you wallow in a pit of misery and despair. Or maybe you just stay in your sin. Well, I've already messed up. I've already completely blown it. I might as well just stay down here in this place and give myself over to more sin. I've done that before. Still, others of you, you get so ashamed. Ah, oh, man, I can't believe it. I've fallen into the sin yet again. Uh, surely this time, God is done with me, and you wonder if God will ever take you back. Now, all of those are wrong responses to sin, better to learn from Abram. Uh, from his place of sin, Abram by faith turned around and he went back to the beginning, retracing his steps to the altar where it all began for him. Now, for you and I, where is that place? Where did your journey of faith begin? Not on an altar, not on an altar between Bethel and Ai, but at Calvary on a cross. Whenever we fail, We must retrace our steps back to where we started, back to the beginning, back to the cross, to the gospel, to that wonderful news that Jesus took all of the guilt and all of the shame and all the condemnation for sin on behalf of all who believe in Him and call on His name. We need to go back to where we started, and that means by faith, laying hold of that wonderful promise in 1 John 1, 9 that says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. It's not that we get saved all over again. That's not necessary. But what is necessary is for us to get back into a state where we are… We're enjoying the forgiveness of God, and we're experiencing the sense of security and communion in our relationship with God that was broken during our time of rebellion. So it's not about salvation, it's about restoration. King David realized this, right? After he fell into the sin of murder and adultery, and he prays in Psalm 51 to the Lord, not for salvation, but that the Lord would restore to him the joy of his salvation, and that comes only when we confess our sins and repent and return to God. We must be like the prodigal son in that parable that Jesus told in Luke 15, uh, that son who, who um, after selfishly abandoning his father and squandering his inheritance on partying and sinful living, and after feeling the weight of the misery that comes with the consequences of his sin, sinking as low as he can go, he comes to his senses and says, "'What am I doing? This is ridiculous.'" I will arise and go to my father and confess my sin." And and what happens? His father receives him back with joy and celebration. James Boyce once said that the devil tells us we have sinned and can never go back, but God is the God of new beginnings. Someone has said that he is the God of the second chance, but Boyce writes, uh, he's even more gracious than that. He, he's, he's God not merely of the second chance, but of the 77th chance, and if needed, the 177th chance. Return to the Lord and the blood of the cross, and you will start again. So if you're here this morning in the wake of disastrous spiritual failure, lift up your head, be encouraged. God's word for you today is to go back to the place where you began. Go back to the gospel. Go back to the cross. And so, Abram, returning to Bethel where he began, is constructing this altar uh, he, 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 This altar to the Lord. It, it's, it's the altar that he actually built at, at first, and he worships God there. And this shows that He is returning to the Lord in repentance and renewed faith. What we have here is a, a fresh start and a new beginning. But as we discussed last week, when we move forward in faith, our faith is also tested. And in chapter 12, the test came in the form of a famine. In chapter 13, it comes through the burden of riches. And so we see next a dangerous conflict, a dangerous conflict. Verse 2 says that Abram was very rich in livestock and and silver and and, and gold. He was probably already somewhat well-to-do when he initially went on his journey from Ur into the Promised Land, but of course, we saw last week when he was in Egypt, he got even richer as Pharaoh was just lavishing him with all of these these gifts. And in verse 5, we're reintroduced to Abram's nephew, Lot, who also had flocks and herds and tents, verse 6. The land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. There was too much of them and too little good land to support them both. And you can imagine the tension that this would cause, the the conflicts over grazing rights and water rights and so on. text says there was strife Uh, That word, strife, in the Hebrew, it's used later on in the Old Testament as a legal term for lawsuits. Uh, So things are getting pretty heated here. Uh, There's growing tension between these two families. These herdsmen are probably on the verge verge of coming to blows. Uh, Maybe it's already happened. But here's what makes this strife all the more serious, and the end of verse 7 notes that the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. They were not alone. Uh, They're surrounded by these warrior tribes, and this is not a safe situation. Uh, So, here's the test. What's he going to do? Abram can go the way that he went in chapter 12, uh, the way of scheming and manipulating and trying to get his own way, or he can go a better way, and he does. We see that Abram proposes a loving, faith-filled solution. Look at verse 8, Then Abram said to Lot, uh, "'Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left.'" Now, this is remarkable. Abram is treating Lot with extreme generosity. He, he's giving Lot first pick over the land. Now, think about it. Who really has rights to the land? Abram. Abram is older than Lot. He's the clan leader. He's in charge. Custom would dictate that Abram has first rights. What's more, Abram has divine rights. It's it's to Abram, not Lot, to whom God appeared and made all these promises in the first place. And so, Abram could have easily pulled rank, and he could have asserted his rights over Lot. Don't you know who I am? God says, this is all mine, so you can just go back to Mesopotamia. You're getting none of this. But instead, he's treating Lot like an equal partner, uh, indeed, even as a superior. And he's deferring to Lot. And and what's his motive for this? Look at verse 8. He says, let there be no strife between you and me, for we are kinsmen. For Abram, peace and unity among the family is more important than him fighting for his rights. And oh, how we in the church have much to learn from Abram's humility and from his attitude here, his godly attitude. If Abram is willing to go all out for peace and unity with Lot on the basis of a family relationship, how much more should we in the church, in our dealings with our brothers and sisters in Christ, How much more should we, when there is tension uh, between us, how much more should we echo Abram's words, let there be no strife between you and me. Why? Because we are kinsmen. We're family. Abram goes all out, even knowing that it may result in great inconvenience to him. He really exemplifies Romans 12.10 that exhorts us to outdo one another in showing honor. He exemplifies the, the command in Romans 12:18 that says, "If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all." Now, how is Abram able to, to do this to, to be so big-hearted and magnanimous and generous in this situation? How, how could he do this? Uh, how could he not just fight with lot for his own way? I think we get a clue when we turn to a text that we often use to help us to understand why strife breaks out between us in the first place. And it's in James chapter 4, and James writes this, "'What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask.'" In other words, we aren't asking God for what we want. We don't trust that God will provide for us what we need, and and and, and what we want, we want it so much that we will fight to get whatever we think we need. The source of fighting and strife and quarreling in the church stems from unbelief from a lack of faith in the provision of God, which means that the peacemaker is the one who lays down his sword because he doesn't have to fight his brother because he's trusting in God. And that, friends, I think is the key to understanding how Abram can be so incredibly generous and loving to Lot. The Abram of Genesis 13 is so different than the Abram that we saw last week in Genesis 12. Last week, we saw Abram living in fear and in unbelief, and he was anxious about his life and about his future and what he would eat and drink. It was all about Abram. And since he wasn't trusting in God, the only alternative was for him to plot and to scheme and and to deceive and try to control the situation himself so he could get what he wanted. But now in Genesis 13… Abram is a completely different man. He doesn't resort to cunning manipulation or or trickery to get what he wants because, unlike Genesis 12, Abram now is trusting in the promises of God. He doesn't have to fight with Lot over anything. James Boyce says that when he had gone to Egypt, he had chosen for himself and gotten into great difficulty. But now, Abram was content to leave the choices with God and to trust God for his future provision. Another commentator said that Abram knew that he could give the land away a thousand times, but it didn't matter. It was was going to his descendants no matter what. God had promised it. Abram believed it. That settled it. He doesn't need to worry about this. You see, friends, when you are trusting in the promises of God, you are free to love and serve others. You are liberated from thinking about self. And you're released to think about others. So, for example, if I truly believe the promise of Philippians uh, that God will provide for all of my needs, that frees me up now to consider the needs of others, whether that's material needs or or other needs. But if I don't trust that promise, I will tend to be stingy. I have to provide for my needs. I have to take care of myself. I have to hold on to these things. Sorry, I can't help you out. Or… If I believe the promise that, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, then I can go into a really hard ministry situation. Uh, maybe it's loving a person who's really hard and, and, and difficult. I don't have to worry about, well, can I, can I do this? I don't know if I can handle this. Because the promise tells me I can through Christ who gives me strength. Now, if I don't believe that promise, guess what? I'll avoid loving that person. One of my favorite examples in the Bible of how faith and the promises of God leads to radical acts of self-denying loving service to others is Hebrews 10.34, and it says this, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I want you to think about what's going on in that verse. These Hebrew Christians had a loving ministry to other Christians who were in prison, and it was a dangerous ministry, because associating yourself with those imprisoned brothers and sisters could result in serious, violent backlash, even the destruction of your home, the plundering of your property. That's a dangerous, risky ministry. But it's also really loving. Now, how could they do, how could they do that? And how could they do it with joy? text says you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. That's, that's weird for us to even think about today because we're so attached to our stuff and our rights. How could they do it? It says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's the key right there. The way that these Hebrew Christians were able to joyfully serve their brothers and sisters, be kind and loving and generous and magnanimous and all this, even at the expense of their own property being plundered, was because of their confidence in the promises of God. That God had something better for them. In the next age, in, in, in heaven, there was something better coming uh, for them, far better than anything that they would lose right now. So, so they could accept the plundering of their property with joy. I got some way better coming than that old, that old shack. Now, if they did not believe that promise, they would not have compassion on those other believers in prison. They would not have loved them. They would not have had that same kind of concern for them. They would have instead sought to protect and guard their current earthly assets, currently uh, constantly looking over their shoulders, and they would have been less loving. Now, Abram, in his dealings with Lot, he could be so magnanimous because his mind was set on the promises of God. The book of Hebrews says that Abram was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God, a better country, a heavenly one. So if that's coming, why fight over a patch of grass? What's the big deal? God's got this, and He's going to take care of this, and He's got something better coming later on, not just Canaan, but the entire world. So, so I don't have to fight and, and jockey for position. And so, faith in God's promises liberates him to stop worrying about himself and to love and serve lots. And he's able to defer the immediate satisfaction of getting the best land now because he already has the best by promise. Now, if Abram is exemplary of one who walks by faith, Lot, sadly, is a demonstration of one who walks by sight. And so now we see a, a foolish and a faithless choice. <clears throat> Look at verse 10. <clears throat> it says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. Abram said, 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 pick what you want, Lot. And Lot took full advantage of that offer. He's like, awesome! <laughs> while, while Abram is selfless in his offer, Lot is very selfish in his choice. All he can really think about is what might be to his own material advantage. John Calvin is, is particularly incensed at Lot's behavior here. Calvin writes that, "...as the equity of Abram was worthy of no little praise, so the inconsideration of Lot is deserving of censure." Uh, Calvin says he ought rather to have contended with his uncle for the palm of modesty. But uh, just as if he had been in every respect the superior, he usurps for himself the better portion and makes choice of that region which seemed the more fertile and agreeable. And indeed, it necessarily follows, Calvin says, that whosoever is too eagerly intent upon his own advantage is wanting in humanity towards others. Or to put it another way, that person's not going to be able to really love others. The comparison of the valley with the Garden of Eden is chilling, as it recalls man's first greedy rebellion with God. The text says that Lot lifted up his eyes, and it brings to mind Eve in the garden, who beheld the eyes of the Beheld with the, her eyes the beauty of that forbidden fruit, and she's entranced by its appearance. And she could think of nothing else, and how good this is, and how awesome this is, and how wonderful this will be for me if I grab this fruit. Lot here, too, is, is enraptured by the Jordan Valley. He's impressed and taken in by its outward appearance. And, and notice it's, co- it's compared to another lush land that would also convey negative overtones to Moses' original audience that being Egypt. It's like Egypt. Verse 11 says, so Lot chose all, (laughs) all the Jordan Valley. He just went for it all. You know, in chapter 12, there was a famine. Here in chapter 13, there's barely any water around. He's got a fight with his uncle for that. So he's tired, obviously, of this way of life. And so Lot is just swinging for the fences. He's going for broke, and he seizes the very best for himself. And too bad for old Uncle Abram. Uh, He made the offer, after all. Here's a place where Lot knows he can prosper even more, he can thrive, he can grow his business interest. Now let me make it clear: if you have any sort of business, there's nothing wrong with considering how your choices may affect your business for good or for ill. That's not the problem. The problem is that Lot's primary consideration was material. It was, it was about the, the bottom line. And I think that'll become more clear to you later on as we progress through this series, and and, and Lot just demonstrates mixed-up priorities. If you follow the trajectory of of Lot, I'm I'm coming at you now knowing the whole story, and some of you do as well, and you know what I mean. But we already get some dark hints about uh, the fact that what Lot is doing is not a good idea. In verse 10, After this incredible, stunning description of the valley, the verse ends with an ominous ominous parenthetical statement from Moses, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, that's not good. Uh, Now again, if you already know the story, Sodom and Gomorrah will evoke in your mind some of the most vile and uh, grotesque cities of sin in the entire Bible. Very often in the Bible, uh, there is this motif, reoccurring motif of the city, especially in the Old Testament. Uh, There's there's this reoccurring motif of the city being a center of man's defiant rebellion against God. We saw it in Genesis 4 with rebellious Cain. Uh, He was cursed by God to be a wanderer because of his murderous sin, and, and yet he tries to stop his wandering by building a city. In Genesis 11, we see the founding of the, of the city of Babylon with its great tower, a symbol not only of man's ingenuity, but of man's pride against God. And, and now we're introduced to Sodom and Gomorrah, the wealthy, powerful, impressive, doomed cities of antiquity. And why was it doomed? Verse 13, "'Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord.'" Uh, great sinners against the Lord. and the Hebrew, uh, it carries the idea that the really, really bad sinners are like a step below normal sinners. And we're told that Lot moves his tent as far as Sodom. Talks about him going eastward. Again, this is another motif in the book of Genesis that sometimes carries negative connotations. Adam and Eve expelled from the garden and The sword of judgment placed at the the east of Eden. Cain driven away from the presence of the Lord, going, going ever eastward. The men of Babel associated with the east. Lot pitches his tent as far as Sodom. This is the place where he's going to set up shop, this is the people with whom he will do business with. And I'm sure he could have easily justified uh, this by saying, listen, I'm, just, I'm moving my tents just outside of Sodom. I'm actually not going into that cesspool. I'll meet some business partners. I'll, I'll do some deals. I'll make some money. That's all I'm doing. James Boyce says that Lot wanted to live near enough to Sodom to enjoy its supposed privileges but not get caught up in his life. And yet we'll see that Lot as we follow the story, becomes more and more entangled in Sodom. It's a downward descent for Lot. It's a sad story. And he'll come to see that choosing this lush, beautiful, prosperous valley becomes the worst decision of his life. His choice will ruin his daughters, his wife, his very life. You see, while Abram was walking by faith, Lot was walking by sight. While Abram was believing in the promises of God that liberated him to love and serve his nephew, Lot made his choices on the basis of material concerns, not spiritual. Uh, It's not that Lot's saying, well, I'm going to go into Sodom and I'm going to be a witness there. That's that's not his… He's not going as a missionary. He's not going as a church planter. Lot makes his choice based on material concerns, not spiritual. This causes him to be selfish and greedy. He's got no regard for Abram, his superior, and no regard for the spiritual consequences of his decision. He leans on his own understanding. He chooses based on what seems right to him. But the Scriptures say that there is a way that seems right to man. But in the end, it leads to death. And we should learn from Lot's mistake So often people will take this job or move to this or that location solely on the basis of material advantage. Well, of course I'm going to take this job. It offers more money, uh, more financial security for my family. And yet, how often do we consider, as as we're wrestling with these choices, how often do we consider, will taking this job, will following this opportunity, will moving to this location have have a positive or negative impact on my spiritual walk with the Lord? Uh, How will it affect my spouse? How will it affect my kids? Uh, Will living in this neighborhood cost so much money that I won't be able to be generous to ministries and to those in need serving the Lord in that way because I'm caught up in my own debt? Will this opportunity help my marriage? Will this job prevent involvement and participation in a church like God commands me to do? Or or is this place that I'm moving, does it even have a good church where my family can flourish in the faith? Now, again, if you're a missionary, if you're a church planter, you may well go to a place where there is no church on purpose, to be surrounded by lost people for the sake of mission. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about these, 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 these regular, normal decisions that, that Americans face every single day, and, and how often do we take the spiritual considerations uh, in, into our uh, thinking, You see, typically, Americans don't make their decisions thinking about these big spiritual issues. It's typically about the bottom line and pragmatics and things of that nature. But the people of faith should make their decisions with all of these things in mind. Again, Calvin says, let us then learn by this example that our eyes are not to be trusted but that we must rather be on our guard lest we be ensnared by them and be encircled unawares with many evils, just as Lot, when he fancied that he was dwelling in paradise, was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. Well, for now, we'll leave Lot as he tramps off eastward, so excited about his future and his bright prospects. And let's return to Abram. Here he's watching his nephew go towards this incredible valley, well-watered, green everywhere. He's standing practically in a desert, and on the surface, just by looking at the situation by sight, Abram seems like a fool. You just stepped aside and let him pick whatever? He's not a fool. He's walking by faith, and so he's resting in the promises of God. And my final observation is that we see a promise expanded, a promise expanded. In verse 14, God appears to Abram and encourages him uh, in that he made the right choice. It says, the Lord said to Abram, after, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. Now, that's interesting. That's an interesting contrast here with Lot. We're told that Lot lifted up his eyes, but when Lot lifts up his eyes, he only sees by sight. And when Abram lifts up his eyes, He looks by faith, and what he sees is nothing short of remarkable. God says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Now, some people believe this dramatic event occurs at Ramoth Hazor, just a few miles north of Bethel, and it's the highest spot in central Israel. And if that's the case, from that point, Abram could view Mount Hermon to the north, the Dead Sea and the hills of Hebron to the south, Jordan to the east, and the Mediterranean Sea in the west. In other words, he could pretty much see it all, all of what we know as Israel, and then some. God confirms Abram's faith and says, what I'm giving to you, Abram, is way better than what Lot is getting. Verse 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Now, that's a pretty significant expansion of the promise, isn't it? In chapter 12, God promises Abram land and an offspring, but now He's promising a lot of offspring, like the dust of the earth. Now, I want to talk more about that later, in a later chapter. But right now, we'll we'll push to the end of 13. Verse 17, it says, Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And in the ancient world, it was not uncommon uh, for kings and rulers to walk through the breadth of their domain. It was a way of claiming it. It was a way of declaring that this this is my realm. It belongs to me. And God is telling Abram, go do that. And Abram, by faith, does it. I say it's by faith because it's not like he owns any of this land. It's not like he has legal rights to a single bit of dust. And oh, by the way, the Canaanites and the Perizzites are still in the land. And by faith, Abram goes on this walking tour anyway. And through the eyes of faith, he sees it as all his. Lot can have the Jordan Valley, but Abram knows something better is coming. A better country, a city whose builder is God, and worldwide blessing. And this land, with his offspring, will serve as the place and the people who will bring it all to pass. And what's Abram's response to all this? It's not fearful fretting. It's not anxiety. It's not worrying about how all this is going to happen. His response is worship. Verse 18, "'So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord.'" I see Abram's back now to building altars and going around and proclaiming the name of the Lord. We saw none of this in the Egypt episode last week. He's in a different place now. And notice how Genesis 13 is framed at the beginning and at the end with Abram at an altar. Uh, the chapter begins with him approaching God by faith, and then he walks in faith in his dealings with Lot, and then God affirms his faith and gives him his promise, his word, and the result is more faith. As Abram walks the land and claims it, it's because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. All he has in this moment is God's promise. All he has in this moment is God's word of something better to come, and in that Abram is content and that Abram rests. Like Abram, we are a pilgrim people. And the question for us is will we walk by faith or will we walk by sight? Now, we are in a better position than Abram because we have seen many more of the promises of God's Word fulfilled than he ever did. If Abram was generous and magnanimous in giving up his rights for Lot and seeking his best interests, how much more so was the offspring of Abram, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his dealings with us? Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus died to pay sin's penalty so that whosoever would call on the name of the Lord and trust in Jesus' sacrifice for sins would be saved, and, and while we rejoice over that truth, we're still a pilgrim people, like Abram in a way. Uh, we aren't in heaven yet. Like, like Abram, we're still looking for that, that better country to come, that city whose builder is God's.